Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 12 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lendrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And we are here at the dozenth episode. I guess they really are cheaper by the dozen in this case. Tw- episode number 12, everybody. And you know, you know what else I think about the number 12, Jacob? I think give it a couple more days, maybe, or a couple more weeks. And that is also the number of accusers that will have come out against Andrew Cuomo by then. We've had at least a dozen so far, haven't we? Uh, seven right now. He is currently at seven women who have come out against him. I just, I know we talked about this previously in a previous episode, and I don't want to retread over familiar territory too much, but I just had to, I had to riff on this guy again. Last time we talked about him, it was just the nursing home thing, right? He was giving that press conference where he was just saying, uh, who cares whether they died in the nursing home or, or they were old and going to die anyway. They died. Who cares, man? And that was all we had to go on to just absolutely tear into that guy. Now, <laughs> oh, this is great. This is, uh, I think this is, this is sweet, sweet justice here. I mean, you guys have all probably heard by now. Seven women, one anonymous, six others, mostly former aides, former staffers, uh, one who previously worked for the Biden campaign, have all come out and accused him of inappropriate uh, touching, kind of along the lines of Joe Biden, uh, sexual harassment, asking him very, very um, intrusive questions, shall we say, about their sex lives. <laughs> and everything has turned. Everything has just been completely flipped on its head for Andrew Cuomo. I, I'm old enough to remember when this guy was being propped up by the media shamelessly. They gave him an Emmy and everything because he was doing these daily coronavirus briefings and, oh, he was the the alternative to Donald Trump. This is the real leader, authentic leadership that we need in in the fight against the coronavirus. And now things, again, the nursing home thing was already kind of undoing everything for him, but then this just kicked it into turbo drive. So now we have, what, like over half of the members of the New York State Legislature in both houses have called on him to resign uh, the Senate majority leader has called on him to resign, I believe. The Speaker of the State Assembly has authorized an impeachment investigation into Cuomo from the State Assembly, not over the nursing home thing, mind you, over these allegations. I can't help but find it kind of funny that now, like, the first woman came out and then they just started coming out one after the other, after the other, after the other. It does seem a little bit, uh, shall we say, convenient if only because just one after the other after the other out of nowhere. They're, they're very recent allegations. They're very old allegations. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the Herman Cain thing. You remember when they did that to Herman Cain back yeah, in 2011? Yeah. It seems politically inconvenient. But at the end of the day, whatever takes this scumbag down is perfectly fine with me. So I, I do think, of course, you can talk about all the hypocrisy that, you know, they, they all rushed to condemn Kavanaugh, even though those allegations were thoroughly debunked. But then it took him a while to come around on this guy. But they are throwing him to the wolves. The media has turned on him. The The party has all but turned on him at this point. Even Biden and Pelosi and all of them have basically said that at the very least they support investigations. It, it's just they are they smell the blood in the water and they see the sharks are circling and they know that this guy is toast. Well, his nursing home, his nursing home position was indefensible. And so Democrats have to find some way to try to get rid of him without highlighting what he did, what I'm sure other governors did, whether on purpose or inadvertently, and the, the Me Too movement or the Me Too, uh, Too moment provides the perfect excuse to do that with uh, with Cuomo. I was literally actually just about to say that. You're, I didn't even tell you that. You're a mind reader, dude. But literally, yeah, that several other, if it was just the nursing home thing alone, several other Democratic governors, including Tom Wolf in Pennsylvania and Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, are also implicated in very similar, equally disastrous nursing home policies that killed thousands and tens of thousands of elderly citizens. So they said, okay, 
we gotta let one guy take the fall for this, but for a reason other than that, so that Whitmer and Wolf and a lot of them can get away scot-free, which appears to be what's happening here, because, I mean, obviously, they're not gonna suddenly meet to Whitmer. She's a woman, so that is ultimately... I, I agree with that. That does... Again, that may sound a little conspiracy theory-ish, but at the end of the day, that definitely makes sense from a political standpoint. I do find it really funny, though. This man has such a massive ego. He will not resign. He keeps saying, I will not resign, I will not resign even though realistically resigning is the better option for him at this point because he's now facing an impeachment investigation. He's facing an independent investigation from his state attorney general, Letitia James, over both the nursing home and the assault allegations, the sexual allegations, on top of impeachment, plummeting approval ratings, and going into a re-election next year. He said he is running for re-election, so he's also facing the possibility not only does he get impeached and investigated 10 times over, but he also gets primaried out. He absolutely, especially if, you know, they run a, if a woman runs against him, like an AOC, you know, a woman who can take advantage of this sexual assault thing, he would get primaried out, which is even more humiliating than resigning, I think. But the dude just won't let it go. He will not let go of power. He cannot get over his own ego, and he would rather just go down swinging even though it is it's totally hopeless he's like the black knight in monty python and the holy grail even after you've chopped off both of his arms and both of his legs he still insists on fighting <laughs> it's, just, it's absolutely hilarious to watch this slow motion train wreck and i say this is definitely one of the very and i mean very few silver linings in biden being in office now is that now they are much more likely to turn on each other and eat each other alive because you know for a fact if trump was still in office they would not be doing this to cuomo right now they would still be propping him up as a possible 2024 candidate. They would still be celebrating him. These women would not have come out. And we all know how that would have been. It would have just been four more years of going after Trump and ignoring everything that the Democrats do wrong. Well, let's see how long it takes now. Let's see how many more episodes we have to go before he is out one way or another. I don't think he's going to resign. I think he is probably most likely going to get primaried out, if not actually impeached. There is a chance he could get impeached, but I'm not holding my breath on that. So, happy trails, Andrew Cuomo. You will not be missed. There's another, speaking of which, there's another governor in this country that uh, definitely would not be missed if he were to get the boot. And who might that be, This Jacob? is a Republican governor, actually. His name is Greg Abbott. Oh, Texas boy. Governor Greg Abbott. So, as everyone knows, Twitter has gone full fascist mode on anyone who is slightly right of center. If you criticize, there's certain things that are off topic you're not allowed to discuss. You're not allowed to discuss election integrity. If you even discuss it, you could get kicked off with no explanation. You're not allowed to, you know, be mean. You're basically not allowed to be mean to Democrats. Otherwise, you can be get kicked off for no reason whatsoever. You're not allowed to become influential on the right on Twitter. If you start becoming too powerful, if you start gaining too many followers, they will start taking followers away from you. They'll start limiting your reach. So in the wake of this mass censorship from Twitter and with absolutely no help coming from government because Trump didn't do anything about it whenever he was in office, and now with him out of office, uh, nothing that's definitely going to be done. I mean, Twitter is working hand-in-glove with the Democratic Party to defeat the Republican Party. Gab has risen in popularity, especially with uh, once Parlay.com got shut down by Amazon. So people have been have started migrating to Gab. Now, for those that don't know, Gab is a social media site where the right take is on Gab, so please give us a follow if you have an account there. But it's a social media site founded by Andrew Torba as a reaction to the constant censorship by the mainstream social media companies. And it's, uh, you know, it's just exploded. They think they said they were adding 50,000 users a day in the month of February. It's just absolutely exploded in, in reach and in usage. The website literally crashed the day Trump was banned from Twitter because right. of the like a 700 percent increase in traffic. Right. They had everybody to, was going they had to add more servers and stuff. Because and the thing is, the thing about Gab is unlike 
like Parlay, they actually own their own servers, so they don't have mm-hmm. to rely on you know Amazon or somebody else for their servers. So you would think that Republicans would you know herald the rise of Gab as an alternative to Twitter because you got you still got a lot of Republicans who don't believe we should have any any censorship by government of social media companies at all. They don't think that we should have any regulation. Well, not censorship, but let regulation. The f- let the free market work out, bro. Right. I mean, that's the way That's the way some Republicans are still, they're still clinging to that free market, you know, that free market ideology that no, most of us all agreed with before the rise of big tech. So even by those standards, you would think they would support the rise of Gab as a free market alternative, but no. So recently, Governor Greg Abbott decided to launch an all-out attack on Gab. He said he, uh, with... Out of nowhere, right? Just out, of, just out of the clear blue, like the out of absolutely nowhere. You got he was flanked by Representative Craig Goldman and Representative Phil King, two state house reps in Texas, and behind him were the Texas flag, the American flag, and the Israeli flag. And he said, "Quote: Anti-Semitic platforms like Gab have no place in Texas and certainly do not represent Texas values." Okay, so he's claiming Gab is anti-Semitic, but he offers no proof whatsoever. He gives None no, whatsoever. Yeah, he gives no proof of uh, that this platform is supposedly anti-Semitic. And how? And a good question is, how can a platform be anti-Semitic? So social media companies are platforms. They're not publishers. If you're a publisher and you post anti-Semitic comment, you can correctly be called anti-Semitic. But if you're a platform like Gab or Twitter or Facebook and you have users who post things that attack Jews, then you, those users themselves are anti-Semitic. Your platform is not anti-Semitic. That would be like saying that, Walmart is anti-Semitic because they let an anti-Semite go in and buy a loaf of bread. He checked out the cash register and he was caught on, on camera. And they, he's a known anti-Semite and they allowed him to buy bread. That would that would be the that would be the equivalent. But this this raises a you know a bigger question. Why would he come out? Why would the governor of Texas come out and attack Gab for a few random anti-Semites in their mommy's basement posting mean things about Jews? I mean, you got to understand, there's millions of people on Gab now. Uh, literally millions, especially after the they're fleeing from Parlay after Parlay was shut down. So why would he single out Gab as being anti-Semitic? American greatness has a, has a few theories on this. The first theory is that perhaps Abbott is concerned about a potential primary challenger from Alan West. Alan West is the head of the Texas GOP. And Former congressman from Florida before he moved to Texas and not only became head of the Texas Republican Party, he beat the incumbent chairman. In his re-election bid. So it was a pretty big deal. He came smashing onto the scene in the Texas Republican Party and is already a rising star. Yeah, and this guy's been, he's been, a, been a pretty big star with a lot of people on the on the more like grassroots right as opposed to the establishment right. So Chris Betts, uh, in an interview with American Greatness, said a lot of Texans are very frustrated with Greg Abbott uh, right now, and Alan West seems to be the voice of that rising dissent. So Betts is an activist with the True Texas Project, which is more in tune to a conservative grassroots organization. And Alan West had actually had created a, an account on Gab. He had set up a, an account for the Texas GOP, and he had been encouraging Republicans to join Gab. So, so basically what that article is getting at is the idea that because West encouraged people to join Gab, and they literally created a verified account on Gab for the Texas GOP, with Abbott coming out and doing this, he's and declaring, I'm banning Gab because it is anti-Semitic. He is trying to force West into a corner, like back him up into a corner to defend Gab. So then Abbott can point at him and say, oh, look, he's an anti-Semite. He's defending anti-Semitic platforms. So then if West were to try to run against him, all Abbott could do is just say, oh, he's an anti-Semite. Don't you know West is an anti-Semite? Even though this is interesting, apparently that legislation, he in this video, again, he's sitting in his wheelchair, flanked on both sides by the two uh, 
legislators. He f- opens up the the bill like to show it to the camera again, kind of like Trump would, except not nearly as cool as Trump would. But apparently, the bill itself has nothing to do with banning gab. That's not in the bill. It has nothing to do with banning anti-Semitic platforms. It's literally just some Holocaust Remembrance Day memorial, some such thing. Right, like, right. Purely self, you know, commemorative. Like it's not an actual legislation and yet he still touts this as banning gab and that essentially is trying trying to drive that wedge between the voters and alan west in the event that west were to run because again west came along barnstorming the scene and kicked out the former chair of the texas republican party which obviously angered a lot of the establishment right and for all that we hear about texas texas is so great texas is the republican heaven in this country right now the Texas GOP, you and I were talking about this the other day offline, Jacob. The Texas GOP is still very much living under the shadow of the bushes. It is, you, yes. You can see both governors since then, Rick Perry and Greg Abbott, have both kind of tried to imitate Bush. You know, that they're obviously, they're still the biggest name in Texas Republican politics. George P. Bush, actually, who is uh, one of Jeb Bush's sons, he is a current office holder in Texas. It's some little uh, local office. It's nothing too big yet. But they still are active in Texas politics. So... Which obviously the same can't be said for other big dynasties like, for example, the Kennedys, the Kennedy family, which was officially killed off last year in the Senate primary in Massachusetts there. Rip. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so the party for this big conservative bastion that Texas is, it still has a very, I guess we should say it, we have a very cucked party in Texas. It's not... Florida at this point is a better Republican state than Texas is. Ron DeSantis is a better Republican governor than Abbott is. And you can tell Abbott is trying to imitate DeSantis in some ways. Like he had the big announcement, oh, we're opening up. That's the thing. This comes right off of his announcement that we're reopening Texas businesses at 100% capacity. You can do whatever you want. No more mask mandates. So he's kind of riding high off that announcement. But then he turns around and does this out of nowhere, which just kind of shoots himself in the foot, which, uh, pun intended. Um, right. but, well, but- the difference is, so here's the way, here's what you have going on in the Republican Party. You have a group of Republicans, mostly very, very wealthy people who really don't have any connection, any economic connection or social connection to the rank and file Republican voters. They want to bring the party in more in line with the center right version of the, the East Coast and the West Coast. So you think about the media. The media is controlled out of the West Coast and Washington, D.C. and New York City. So almost everyone who get, has a voice in media, they're going to have the left coast and right coast bias. So you have governors in the Republican Party, politicians in the, Repu- in the Republican Party who want to try to make the Republican Party respectable among people who would speak at the Grammys, which we had last night. They want to make the Republican Party respectable among people who are on you know, MSNBC, CNN. They, they want to be able to become be guests on these shows when they talk to these leftists who are on national television. They want to be respected. They want, to, and they want their party to be respected. And we see the second reason for this is uh, Kat Parks, who is the vice chairwoman of the Republican Party under Alan West. She, out of nowhere, the day before, we you know we said that Greg Abbott out of nowhere brought this up, but Kat Parks actually brought this up the night before Greg Abbott decided to take his shot at Gab. Uh, a spokesperson for the party told American Greatness that out of nowhere, in, quote, complete breach of, of protocol, she unilaterally issued a statement condemning Gab, claiming the Texas GOP should deactivate its account, saying, quote, Gab is not a viable or health or healthy outlet for the Republican Party of Texas to share our message of opportunity, liberty and personal empowerment, she wrote. So, of course, the state GOP refused to back down, and the state GOP's account on Twitter, actually all of its social media accounts, actually, without naming Governor Abbott, attacked Governor Abbott's decision to criticize Gab and said we we affirm the, the right to free speech and, of course, and defended its 
position of having an account on Gab. That's one more thing you got to love about Alan West, and it's clear why they're going after him, too. He's not afraid to call out fellow Republicans, which normally is, oh, you don't do that. You don't do that. But he is willing to take that step and call out members of his own party when he needs to, because technically he's the highest ranking Republican in the state as the head of the state GOP, even higher than Greg Abbott, technically speaking. So Right, because they understand they understand how politics works. People at the bottom who are just trying to scrape by and make a living for themselves and their family, they don't have any power. They have no political power, and we're going to get into this a little bit later when we start talking about the current racial situation in this country. People at the bottom of the ladder, they will jump on board with someone who is defending their rights, but if they look around and they don't see any elites defending their rights, and I say elites, I use the word elites, I just basically mean people who have money and power, like Alan West, who are able to use their platform to defend the people who don't have a platform. You know, your, your construction workers, your, your waiters, your, you know, your, your service workers – they don't have a voice. They can't speak up. They can't. They don't have a billion dollars that they can throw at politics. So whenever Alan West and Ron DeSantis make these decisions to buck the trend, to buck the big tech companies, and you know go against them, basically become pariahs and outlaws in the in the minds of people who control all of our institutions, they are giving these people at the bottom hope that there are still a few elites out there with power, with a voice, who are speaking up for them. The third reason that American greatness gives is the corporate angle. Abbott is extremely warm with Silicon Valley, and he hopes to relocate Silicon Valley companies to Texas, known as to an area known as Silicon Hills and Silicon Prairie, which is around Austin and Dallas. And Apple, Amazon, Google, all these have attempted to destroy Gab and Parlay. And so Texas is trying to attract a lot of companies out of California so he can brag that he has created high-paying tech jobs for Texans. The problem with this is all of these companies are extremely hostile to conservatives, of which a majority of Texans are. Another reason why this is a bad idea is because just like whenever you bring Hollywood to Georgia, a lot of times you're bringing – all you're doing is bringing leftist Californians to your state, and it's those leftist Californians that are going to get those jobs. Actual Georgians and actual Texans aren't really going to benefit from this, and most of the Texans who will benefit from this – are going to be so far to the left that they're not going to, there's not going to be any daylight between their politics and California's politics. Now, why is this important? Because when you got to understand the average, I read somewhere that the average salary for a Facebook employee is five hundred thousand dollars a year. The average that employee, much? Yes, that's oh uh, this my. was and this was a couple of years ago, so it's probably more now. The average salary for an American is like fifty eight thousand dollars a year. So when you're bringing these big tech companies to your state, sure, you can go before your people, before your voters and say, look, I brought all these tech companies to my state. We've created X amount of jobs. All these employees are making six figures, or at least most of them. And it makes you look good on paper. It makes you look good to people who don't know any better. But a lot of those people that are going to be coming into your state to work aren't going to be Texans. They're going to be from other states who relocated there with their because they had degrees in the field that needed that these companies needed. It's just, it's just like uh, Ted Cruz was mentioning. Maybe we could relocate three federal departments to West Virginia, which doesn't really, you know, it's not really that crazy of an idea. West Virginia isn't that far from Washington D.C. It could it could be done, but. You know, if West Virginians think that that would benefit them, it really wouldn't. Most of these jobs do require a college degree, and you know, a lot. Of, you're not going to wait for West Virginians to go get four-year degrees so they can fill these jobs. These jobs have to be filled now. So what's going to happen is the same thing that's happened with Northern Virginia and Maryland around DC. You're going to have people coming in from all over the country filling up these jobs who have no connection to the to the state or its history or its people. And this is what would happen with these tech jobs who move if they relocated to Texas. So in a way, he has a he has a corporate reason to do this. So he's, he's got a political reason and a corporate reason. 
And neither of these reasons benefit Texans. But, the, uh, you know, just I want to point out something else. If we're going to – if as conservatives, if we're actually going to have any opportunity to win elections in the future, you have to have communication. The majority of Americans did not vote for Joe Biden because they looked at Joe Biden's policies and Donald Trump's policies and said, you know what, I agree with the former. The majority of Americans voted for Biden because they – Allegedly a majority. Well, I would say – you don't want you say that he won the popular vote? Uh, he absolutely did, but that's mostly that's mostly like illegals in California, I think. Well, yeah, okay. take them out of the equation. Well, even if even if you <laughs> keep them in the equation, the majority of the even those illegals in California, I guarantee you the reason why most of them voted for him was because they had his positions and Trump's positions misrepresented to him. And if you the reason why there you have this misrepresentation of conservatives and liberals is because conservatives don't have a voice in media. We don't have any voice now. We're completely being shut out of the mainstream big tech. Sources. So how is it the same thing as with the Hunter Biden scandal? That was completely squashed. Mm-hmm. And I think it was like there was a poll. Someone took a poll. It was like 20 percent of Biden voters after the election said if they had known about it, they wouldn't have voted for Biden. So when you have a situation like this, your only chance of actually reaching the masses is with alternative tech. And so at least Republicans can find out about this stuff. But if you shut down alternative tech, then Republicans themselves aren't even going to be able to find out about the Hunter Biden stories. So this is just this is inexcusable. This is a situation. If I'm a Texas voter, uh, when is Gabbard, when is uh, Abbott up for reelection? Do you know? I believe he is actually up next year. Next year. Okay. So if I'm a Texas voter and Abbott is still on the ballot in the general election, I'm uh, I'm not going to stay home. I'm going to vote, but I'm going to vote for his Democratic opponent. And this or at is, least vote for a primary challenger first if he gets a legitimate. Well, primary yeah, definitely. Challenger. He, I mean, I'm sure he's going to get a legitimate primary challenge. Challenger. This, if this, if he had made this statement two years ago, nobody would have paid any attention. But after Trump was banned from Twitter, after Parlay was shut down, everybody who is anybody in conservative politics knows what Gab is, and 99% of them support Gab. <laughs> so he's definitely going to get a primary challenge if for, over nothing else over this. So if he survives that primary challenge, if he manages to get big tech to donate to his campaign and keep him in, you know, on the ticket, he needs to go. I, I, sure, uh, we could a Democrat will be bad, but seriously, what's the difference when it comes to big tech? If you got a conservative who's going to or alleged conservative who's going to attack Gab versus a, an alleged, you know, over an actual liberal who's going to attack Gab, I'd, I'd take the liberal any day. And this is this is the only way that the Republican Party is going to be cleansed of people who don't have the grassroots interest at heart is to allow Democrats to be elected whenever these people win the primaries. Exactly. That's the, what we're going to have to use to primary out the rhinos who voted to impeach Trump a second time. And that's what's going to have to be done with anybody who crosses that line and refuses to take a stand where they should take a stand for the sake of their voters, for the sake of Trump and for the sake of the country. And speaking of information being buried, this is, uh, you know, one of the reasons why uh, the political left in the United States has become just so deranged and so crazy and they're able to get away with it is because most people don't know that what they're doing. They're not aware of what they're doing because – like I said, this information is being squelched by the mainstream media and it's being suppressed by big tech. And one thing that I guarantee you a majority of even Republicans aren't aware about is just how crazy these black nationalist woke politics have become in elite circles. That's right. And that leads us to this very, very, very important article. It's it's a scary article, but it's one that you guys should all read if you haven't already. So this is from the City Journal, which is a pretty nice right-wing publication. They have long-form articles on culture and politics, history, philosophy, all that good stuff. Among the likes of some of their most prominent writers there are Andrew Clavin and Victor Davis Hanson. They just published the first ever piece there from Barry Weiss. You guys may remember that name. She was the former New York Times editor who resigned from the Times, claiming that the culture there was just too far left, 
too hostile to opposing opinions. They went out of their way to bully and harass and intimidate and silence anybody who dared to even dissent, if not even from the right, just in general saying, hey, aren't we a little too biased here? We should try not to be so biased. Like the response to Tom Cotton's article, like that kind of thing was also that whole fiasco also really turned her off to the time. So she resigned. And she's been writing uh, for Substack for a while, but she just wrote her first article for City Journal on March 9th. It's titled, The Miseducation of America's Elites. And basically what she did is she traveled between Los Angeles and New York City to meet with multiple groups of parents who are all extremely wealthy. Like, not even upper middle class, like just straight up wealthy. These are very, very rich people who all have kids in elite prep schools, in elite middle schools and high schools. That are basically putting them, they're the most expensive you know, prep schools in the country. They're putting them on the fast track to the Ivy League schools. And she sat down with them and met with them anonymously. And every single one of them requested their, their, their names not be used for this article. Because they dared to talk to her about how they are actually opposed to critical race theory being taught in their schools. That is the overarching, you know, uniting theme of this article. They all oppose critical race theory, which is just anti-whiteness, basically. She describes early on in the article, she says, quote, The parents in the backyard say that for every one of them, there are many more, too afraid to speak up. I've talked to at least five couples who say I get it. I think the way you do. I just don't want the controversy right now, related one mother. The school can ask you to leave for any reason, said one mother at Brentwood, another Los Angeles prep school. Then you'll be blacklisted from all the private schools, and you'll be known as a racist, which is worse than being called a murderer. Which, point number one right there, it's true. If you dare to even question it, boom, you're a Nazi. You're, you're a KKK member. Like, just for daring to suggest, hey, maybe it's not a good idea to teach that all white people are evil. Maybe? Call me crazy here. They described how they, of course, fear not only for possibly their kids getting kicked out, they fear for their own social lives. Parents who have spoken out against this ideology, even in private ways, say it hasn't gone over well. Quote, I had a conversation with a friend and I asked him, is there anything about this movement we should question? Said a father with children in two prep schools in Manhattan. And he said, dude, that's dangerous ground you're on in our friendship. <laughs> I've had enough of those conversations to know what happens. So they fear for losing their own social lives, you know, losing their friends and not being allowed to the fancy wine parties. And, um, oh, yes, where all these people at these parties, you know, in these social circles are, oh, 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 yes, of course, of course, they're all so oppressed. Oh, yes, we must teach about white guilt and racial consciousness. Oh, yes. Well, I, but, I'm <laughs> wondering who would want a friend like that when you're just trying to casually discuss, you know, a, move, a political movement in your country. And they're like, hey, uh, don't go down that road. Otherwise, I'm going to have to stop being friends with you. I mean, that's what happened in communist countries. If mm -hmm. you tried to, if you had a friend, let's imagine you're in the Soviet Union, you've got a friend, and you start bringing up the the pogroms against the Ukrainians. It's like, hey, you know, I, I don't. You tell your buddy, hey, uh, uh, Ivan, I, I don't know if this is a this is. Is there something about this that maybe we should question? Is it okay to to kill Ukrainians? Uh, what are you that, talking that, about, to Mikhail? Yeah, exactly. I shall report you to the party. Exactly. Okay, I value our friendship more than that. I'm going to be quiet. <laughs> and it's not just the parents either. This is the part of the article that really kind of stunned me the most. Even the kids are afraid of, uh, are openly, or privately, I mean, speaking to their parents saying that they oppose this ideology, but they don't want it to be talked about. They don't want to talk about it with their friends, and they don't want their parents to talk about it. Free country, huh? <laughs> At one point in the article, it says, quote, My son knew I was talking to you, and he begged me not to, another Harvard-Westlake mother told me. Quote, he wants to go to a great university. 
and he told me that one bad statement from me will ruin us. This is the United States of America. Are you freaking kidding me? And it's interesting to read further in the article and read and see that these kids are seeing for themselves. Again, that's the impressive thing to me. These kids are being indoctrinated. They're being brainwashed from a very young age that this is the way it is. That oh, yeah. every we've, other we've race undergone a regime change. This is what happens when you undergo a regime change. Every other race has been oppressed throughout history by evil whitey, and you evil whiteys should feel bad. But even then, they're still questioning it. There's this one kid, uh, quote, One Los Angeles mother tells me that her son was recently told by his friend, who is black, that he is, quote, inherently oppressed. She was incredulous. This kid is a multimillionaire, she said. Because remember, these are all kids at these elite prep schools, Harvard, Westlake, and L.A., and others. These are ultra-rich schools, like the children of millionaires. Wait, wait, wait. You're saying, you're saying the, the black kid is a multimillionaire? He, he is a, he's a kid at the prep school, too, whose parents are multimillionaires. So she's saying but their net worth is that they are worth. You mean we have... There's black people who are multimillionaires? Wait, hold on. No, wait a second. You're right. That can't be true. Yeah, that, that's, that's impossible. That, that's There's impossible. No yeah, that... black people can't be rich in a racist country, I right? Know, we're too racist. There's no way that that's... that's yeah, she, I, mean, I mean... That must be a typo or something. Oh, obviously. I mean, yeah, what next? Are we going to have a black president? Like, yes, that's impossible, that's, isn't that's it? That's not possible. My son said to his friend, quote, Explain it to me. Why do you feel oppressed? What has anyone done to make you feel less? And the friend said, The color of my skin. This blew my mind, the mother said. They are just, they're seeing for themselves how stupid this is, that this makes no sense. You take a look at America right now and see that it is absolutely, it's a prosperous and ostensibly free country that has been much better for non-white races than most other countries throughout history. Certainly, you know, talk to China about that. You know, China does not (laughs) care in the slightest. If if your skin is anything other than yellow, they will throw you into those concentration camps. But they are teaching this. And not only are they teaching this as fact, but they're using this as an excuse to erase history. This part real, this part blew my mind. Physics looks different these days, Barry Weiss writes. Quote, we don't call them Newton's laws anymore, an upperclassman at the school informs me. We call them the three fundamental laws of physics. They say we need to, quote, decenter whiteness. And we need to acknowledge that there's more than just Newton in physics. <laughs> Newton was white, so we Newton can't call it Newton's law anymore. So, okay, so let's see. Let's go through the list. Uh, Thomas Edison, he was white, right? Oh, no, remember, remember Biden told those those black kids <gasps> that right. it wasn't uh, people you learned in school that a white man it's invented a the light bulb. It's, it's a lie. Apparently, Thomas Edison didn't invite the, invent the light bulb. A black man did that. It was a black man who invented the light bulb. Okay, so what's next? Uh, did Alexander Graham Bell not invent the uh, the telephone? Oh, I'm sure he didn't. I'm sure that was uh, that, that had to have been invented by, uh, by maybe a person he had a, of color a slave who helped him connect the wiring, so the slave is going to get the credit. And it's not just Newton. It's not just poor Newton. Because remember, it's not just science. Oh, oh, they're going for literature. We've known this for a while that they are going after literature. Quote: Brentwood, a school that costs forty five thousand six hundred thirty dollars a year, made headlines a few weeks back when it held racially segregated quote dialogue and community building sessions. But when I speak with a parent of a middle school student there, they want to talk about their children's English curriculum. They replaced all the books with no input or even informing the parents. The curriculum no longer features classics such as The Scarlet Letter, Little Women, To Kill a Mockingbird, and Lord of the Flies. New books include Stamped, Dear Martin, Dear Justice, and Yaki Delgado Wants to Kick Your Ass. (laughs) I have no idea. I, I mean, I I was in college not too long ago. I have not heard of that book. I I'm kind of disappointed that I haven't. 
I'm going to assume that's some kind of Mexican, Hispanic, Latin X grievances book. I don't know, judging from the name. Uh, but that, and of course, they've, they've talked about this, obviously, that plenty of other books. You know, they went after Huck Finn. I mean, for years, they've been trying to get rid of Huck Finn, which is literally, th- arguably, the American novel. I personally would disagree. I think Moby Dick is the great American novel. But Huckleberry Finn, because, of course, they very frequently use the N-word, because that was just... That was how they talked back then, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's just part of the book, you know? And even though, again, Huck Finn, it's hilarious. It's like Heart of Darkness. You know, they keep trying to say Heart of Darkness is racist, even though the narrator and the main character of that book, Charles Marlowe, is literally anti-slavery and voices his Yeah, and To Kill a Mockingbird is anti-racism, very strongly anti-racism. literally, yeah, absolutely. In fact, it was written by someone who was trying to bring to light the fact that there was legal discrimination against black Americans. But because the that N-bomb is all throughout the book— they purposely want to ban, you know, they want to ban that. Now, we forget the forget the life lessons. <laughs> just Exactly. No, it's just infuriates me. And again, as an English minor, that, that absolutely triggers me. And they actually refer back to something that was also, uh, that was in the news a little while ago. One teacher told me that he was asked to teach an anti-racist curriculum that includes a, quote, pyramid of white supremacy. I mean, I guess we know the pyramids are already symbols of racism and oppression because they were built by slaves as well. You know, the Egyptian pyramids. No, no, no. They, they were. But well, the slave owners themselves were African. So it's OK. Slavery is OK as long as the slave owners themselves are African. So are, are not white. Basically. Right, right, right. So oh, okay. in Egypt, oh, the slave oh. the slave owners themselves were African. So it's, right. it's OK. Oh, OK. I, I missed the memo. OK. Sorry about that. Pyramid of white supremacy. At the top of the pyramid was genocide. At the bottom was, quote, two sides to every story. <laughs> Two sides to every story, he so said. If that you, was on the racist pyramid. So if you believe that there's two sides to the story of the death of George Floyd, if you even open up that conversation, you could potentially lead to genocide against black people. It's, it's so, just inevitable, obviously. Right, that, that's why that father had to shut down the conversation. He said, you know what? Is there something about this Black Lives Matter movement we should question? Nope, don't, you know, don't ever bring that up to me again or our friendship is done. Because if you start going down that rabbit hole – you know, eventually you're going to end up committing genocide. So you don't want to commit genocide. You don't want to be guilty of genocide. So don't go down that rabbit hole. Are they trying to teach us that that, that we all have a little bit of Hitler inside of us? Is that's that what they're exactly, going for? That, that's we exactly all, what they're any, trying to teach us. Anybody of us could be the literally the next Hitler, well, Hitler I guess. Well, Hitler was white. So anyone who is mm-hmm. white has a little bit of Hitler in them, and they could potentially wind up there if they go mm-hmm. too far. So we need to start monitoring all uh, art school rejects then. That That's the obvious next logical step. Right, right, right. If you couldn't make it in art school, then obviously you're, you're you know, when, one day you're going to start. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, you, you got to watch those art rejects. Oh, that, uh, you can't stand. I mean, liberal arts students already are a problem, but the rejects are. Yeah, if you can't worse. if you can't make it in liberal arts school, then you're probably gonna you're probably so dumb because liberal <laughs> arts schools have been dumbed down so much that the resentment that you're gonna feel from that rejection is just gonna be too much to bear, and you're just gonna become a serial killer. I mean, that's 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 inevitable. Oh boy. <laughs> At Harvard Westlake, the school recently administered the debunked implicit bias test to 10th graders. It was technically optional, but several parents I spoke with said that their children felt compelled to take it. There again, it's a societal pressure. One mother confided that her son said to her, Mom, I just found out I'm a racist and I prefer white Europeans. Her child is mixed race. For my kid to come home and be told by his school you are a racist, I was aghast. I was so, so angry. A Brentwood parent says that she has tried in small ways to stand up to this. They say I don't understand because my skin is white. Children like hers are being taught to give up ambition and yield positions that they might earn through hard work to others who are more marginalized. My child is asking me obvious questions like, if I work really hard, 
shouldn't I get rewarded? Well, according to the uh, National Museum of African American History, hard work and personal responsibility is is part of whiteness, right, Jacob? Right, right. So I guess that that girl, that student, just obviously needs to to Ooh. be educated a little bit more. And the article ends. Uh, these are just uh, portions of it, of course. That we'll post a link to this full article in the description below. It ends with quote. I have a friend in New York. I had a friend in New York City. Never call me by my name. Call me <laughs> Hillbilly. I'm sorry. Right, I'm sorry. Right, I'm sorry. Right. I just had to. That came to mind immediately. I have a friend in New York who is the mother to a four-year-old. She seems exactly the kind of parent these schools would want to attract. A successful entrepreneur, a feminist, and a diehard Manhattanite. She dreamed of sending her daughter to a school like Dalton. One day at home, in the midst of the application process... She was drawing with her daughter, who said offhandedly, I need to draw on my own skin color. Skin color, she told her mother, is, quote, really important. She said that's what she learned in school. And that last point, too, about, oh, this is the kind of person that these schools would want to attract. Because, again, the idea is they all are meeting secretly. They actually are organizing and meeting anonymously, either via Zoom or in their homes, in their backyards, in their big fancy mansions. <clears throat> And they are expressing this disagreement amongst themselves in larger numbers than you would expect. It's interesting because these are, again, these are the wealthiest. These are not just upper middle class. These are rich. These are the elite. These are the lawyers and doctors who rub elbows with Hollywood actors and Beverly Hills and over in New York City with the Wall Street types. These people, for the longest time, were the ones who were among the first and the most enthusiastic to support critical race theory and these far-left agendas. You know, it's been said, uh, Victor Davis Hanson, who again writes for City Journal, has commented that the Democratic Party right now is the party of the uber, uber elite and the dirt, dirt poor, like the welfare recipients, the absolute bottom, absolute top and absolute bottom, cutting out, you know, the middle class and, and the working class, blue collar class. Which is kind of the society that they, that you can tell they want to create. When you look where Democrats have complete hegemony, like in California— that is the society that exists. I mean, absent farm communities where farmers at least are self-sustainable, can create some form of middle class income. When you look at where the most of the population is, you have the uber wealthy and the uber poor. And that, that seems to be the society that they're happy with. Mm -hmm. But then you have this, which can be called kind of a, a, a soft, silent rebellion of members of that wealthy elite. That Just imagine for a second if these people... Maybe they didn't realize this right away. Maybe they were still supportive of this up through 2020. And I, I imagine most of these people probably voted for Biden. You know, certainly California, oh, yeah, New York. Definitely. They voted for Biden. But now I don't know if this is necessarily because of what has happened over the last few months just since Biden took over. But either way, they're starting to realize, oh, wow, they are eventually coming for us. And if it, it's not directly because we don't speak up and they're not going to actually try to cancel us. They're coming for our identity. They're coming for our ability to feel safe and comfortable speaking out about this you know so we are still going to maintain these social circles and it describes in the article we'll go to these fancy fundraisers and donate six digit figures and we'll maybe get a little building on the school campus named after us but we will be inwardly on, on the outs with these people but if you notice the one of their one of the things is their uh their priorities are out of whack because they're not concerned that much about the fact that they're being attacked as white people as they are, how it's going to affect their, their ability to climb the social ladder. Right, their social life, their ability to hold their jobs, which, to be fair, everybody wants to hold a job. But again, these are the richest of the rich. If some of these people got fired tomorrow, they'd probably still have more than enough money saved up to last the rest of their lives, honestly. Right. I mean, most of them are so wealthy, they could go create their own schools. They could go create parallel private schools. If they, if they got tired enough of it, they could go create a separate par parallel school that rejected all of this. 
So this article, I do think, if for those reasons especially, it's very important because, again, not only is it these people who normally would support this speak out against it, but, again, the author is Barry Weiss, you know, who's no friend of the right. She is still definitely left of center. She worked for the New York Times up until very recently. It's interesting to see this contingent of people who are decisively on the left to some degree, but are speaking up the so-called real liberals, as it were. People just distinguish between <laughs> liberals and leftists. The liberals who speak up and say, yeah, hang on, this leftism is getting a little bit out of whack. Like, really? You know, two sides to every story is on the same level as genocide? Like, really? Like, they're calling it out and immediately getting shut down. So I can hope, I certainly, again, California and New York, two states where it matters the least, arguably, but I can certainly hope that this will translate to them finally waking up and getting a bit of a knock on the head mentally and realizing enough is enough. We should not bother voting for the party, the one party that is clearly pushing this stuff. And now that they have all the levers of power, they're going to kick that into overdrive that maybe these people will come to their senses and vote the right way in 2022 and possibly 2024 if, say, Donald Trump is the nominee again. I mean, <clears throat> maybe they, some of them may vote Republican. But when you look at what's the, this particular article, even if you had uh, complete Republican political hegemony, this would not stop what's going on right here in this situation because these are private schools. So the private schools can do whatever they want. They can teach whatever they want. They can, for, they can tell the kids whatever they want, and the government itself isn't going to stop this. So even if they do, quote, unquote, vote the right way, that's not going to roll the tide back. The tide well, sure. is ultimately going to have to be rolled back culturally. Right, right. I agree. But again, it, it kind of goes back to that silent majority thing where obviously the first changes may happen at the political level and then it's slowly – I mean I know they say politics is downstream from culture obviously and the culture is still very much taken over by the left. This is going to take a long time to undo. But it still is – it's better than nothing. I think it's certainly these people waking up and very quietly voting, silently voting for a Republican is still certainly much better than these people still blindly voting to keep the status quo. Well, I mean, you do have a lot of people who did slightly, you know, they are rich and they quietly voted for Donald Trump in 2020, 2016. They didn't say anything about it. They're noticeably very silent about politics. They just don't say anything at all about it. But when when you look at where this has gone, this is the the natural result of what these rich liberals have believed their entire lives. Because you think about it, if you take these liberals who are now in their 40s and 50s, you go back to whenever they were in school. They were taught that only a very small select few of Americans in history were good people because they were progressives. They, you know, The progressives were the only good people. They were a very, very small few in the 1800s. Like They were the abolitionists, and after the Civil War, they were the Reconstructionists, and they were the you know progressives who believed in racial equality. And then finally, we had the Civil Rights Movement, and then the number of good Americans opened up. Like We have more and more good progressive Americans today. But if you take that view, then you've got to say, okay, well, what about all the literature that those racists read in the 1800s? If the people, if 90% of the people that were reading these books were racist, shouldn't we get rid of the books? You know, it follows, you know, what about the authors themselves? If the authors were in, were informed by the time they lived in, the time they lived in was racist. And that's how you eventually lead to the founding fathers had slaves, therefore let's tear down statues of Washington and Lincoln. Correct, correct. And this really comes back, you know, if you're going to have see cultural transformation – you're not just going to be able to clip off the off the limbs. You've got to go to the root, and you've got to uproot the entire ideology that led us to this moment. And until enough parents, these parents are willing to say, you know what, screw this, this is ridiculous. I'm just going to completely rethink everything I've been taught about American history and the history of Western civilization. You're not going to see serious pushback 
from many of these people because, uh, you know, a lot of these people, like the kid was worried his mom was talking to the press about this because it might affect his ability to go, get into a good university. For a lot of these people, this is all America means to them. It's a place where they can rise socially, they can get into a good university. Get a job, start a family, have kids, send kids to the university, repeat the cycle. Right, right. They don't care about freedom because notice the kid, you know, it doesn't seem to dawn on them that, hey, this is wrong, that we live in a society where we're scared to give our own opinions, where we're scared that our parents might say the wrong thing and we'll get ostracized from society. They, they don't see, they don't value freedom at all. They don't value their history. They don't value any kind of, you know, the, the, what we think of as America. You know, people say, why are you proud to be in America? Well, in America, we have freedom. They don't value that. All they care about, you know, they could live in a globalized society in which the America doesn't exist anymore and they would be happy as long as they can climb the social ladder. So until they put their country and their fellow Americans above their ability to climb the social ladder, I don't see, I don't have much hope for anything being turned around at, among white elites. So, you know, in, in the society, suppose that they do manage to climb the social ladder, you know, what kind of social life are their kids and grandkids going to have? So your son is going to get to go to Harvard. OK, maybe he'll meet a, a BIPOC female and marry her oh, and he'll have kids who are mixed race. And then those kids will be taught to that his white uh, that their white father is evil. They'll be they'll be taught to reject their whiteness and they'll claim that because they're half white, half whatever, that they're going to be leaning toward whiteness because of white supremacy and all that. And it reminds me of a conversation I overheard in Washington, D.C. right before the pandemic hit. Uh, there was this uh, – she looked like she was partially like maybe half Indian, half white. She was having a conversation with a friend of hers, and uh, she was talking about this little – I guess a little struggle session class that they were in. This was before Black Lives Matter blew up in June, and she was saying that in the conversation she explained – she said, well, my, my dad is white, and, and, and I love my dad. And she said that the lady who was leading the session said, oh, well, I can't, I can't um, sympathize with that. And I was thinking, goodness gracious. That's literally some Soviet Union yeah, crap right there. Turn like, the kids against their own parents. Yeah, she's like – so she said, well, but I, I love my dad even though he's white. No, I can't sympathize with that. You don't you, – then you don't have any – you don't have any way to understand what it's like for a person of color even because that, you have a white father. Even making them concede that little ground. I love him even though he's white. Yeah, but What's so, that supposed to mean? Her dad is automatically guilty because he's white. And so even – you think about it. You're a parent at these, ki- at these schools – Okay, suppose you do keep quiet, and your your kids do keep quiet. They go through, they keep their head down, they graduate, they get into a good school. What kind of life are they going to have? You know, if they have kids, like I said, if they have kids, even if they don't marry a white person, their kids are still going to be taught to reject them and treat them, um, you know, treat them like dirt. So this isn't this isn't a, if it, the best thing you can do if you're in this situation is to pull out of this school and go to a different school. Run. Just run. Just run. Just leave it. I mean, if you can't even have a conversation, if you're not able to push back against this stuff without fear of social retribution or fear of expulsion, leave. Get out. Don't. Yeah. And this is another thing. Listen, without as long as our Ivy League schools continue to go down this route, their status as Ivy League schools is going to decrease. And Ivy League education in 20 years isn't going to be worth what it is today because they're not accepting students based on merit they're accepting students based on the color of their skin so that's naturally going to decrease it's going to devalue a harvard education so why would you want to put your kid through this kind of torture and this kind of indoctrination so they can go to harvard and graduate in what 2032 and what is will be a diminished institution if it's still around it's not it'll be renamed by then it'll be renamed after george floyd (laughs) yes it'll definitely be renamed after a 
a uh, it'll have to be uh, the most in- intersectional thing that you get. It has to be a transgender a black wom- woman of color, lesbian, tra- black trans queer gender. Some, I, I, I don't even know. I'm they'll, they'll make, I, I'm they'll make up good... something. They'll make, it'll have to be something that's a tra- somebody who's transracial. Tra- transracial. But yeah, like, just if you're uh, in this situation, I, just yeah. leave, leave. I, right, it's not worth it. Go take your life back, enjoy your freedom. There's these these people aren't worth it. I'm struggling to get my train of thought back here. I was gonna throw in a Meghan Markle joke, but I just I I'm so mad I can't even think straight about that because I just don't know. I mean, what is it going to take to wake these people up? I mean, I guess one idea is perhaps I don't know something really crazy and blatantly racially based like reparations but that's not gonna happen right Jacob? Oh, no. that's well, never gonna happen in the united well, states well we actually do have reparations just it's not at this class it's not aimed at this class of people it's aimed at the farmers of course so stacked into this uh 1.9 trillion dollars covid relief bill the is, new new deal according to the mainstream media yes yes the new new deal that um president that the new president fdr recently signed into law is a small measure that awards of $10 million to for agricultural relief. Of this $10 million, $5 million is specifically designated to marginalized peoples. And the marginalized peoples, of course, include pretty much everyone who is not white. I so, was going to say, let me guess, every single race in existence except white Except people. white. If you're, if you're except white, white men. Right. If, if you're white, you're not eligible for half of this. So they set aside $5 million for everyone, for, the, for everyone you know, who is in relief. But then they set aside a specific $5 million for non-white people. And of the $5 million, $4 million it goes to wipe out debt, uh, farmers' debt of non-white people. And then the other billion is used to create programs to incentivize non-white people to go into farming, to help train them, to provide agricultural equipment, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, to help out organizations who do all of the above and to pay for their overhead of which, you know, whenever you distribute money to nonprofits, there's obviously going to be a lot of waste and corruption. It doesn't matter who is running, what race the people who run the nonprofit are. So Senator Lindsey Graham, South Carolina, he specifically on CNN called this reparations. He just said, he blatantly said, this is reparations. It's Did he say that as a good thing or a bad thing, though? Well, yeah, I know that's kind of you kind of wonder what because it's Lindsey Graham we're talking about. But yeah, he, he definitely is not for it. In fact, okay. the, they, the Republicans tried to get this stripped out, but it, they lost the vote fifty to forty nine. So it was it was a close vote. But they did try to strip this reparations deal out of the COVID relief bill. So Representative James Clyburn of South Carolina attacked Lindsey Graham over this. He didn't claim that Graham was wrong. He didn't say, no, this isn't reparations. He said, Lindsey Graham, quote, Lindsey Graham is from South Carolina. He knows South Carolina's history. He knows what the state of South Carolina in this country has done to black farmers in South Carolina. They didn't do it to white farmers. We're trying to rescue the lives and livelihoods of people. He ought to be ashamed of himself. He said, I think you ought to go back and maybe go to church, get in touch with his Christianity. So, oh the, so the argument, so if you don't support reparations for black people, then you're obviously you're not, not a good Christian. You're not a good Christian. Only, you know, if you were a good Christian, you would support taking money away from poor white people and giving it to middle class black Jesus people. would have been a socialist, bro, don't you know? It, yeah, he would. Have, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, this this is kind of the new, like the new hippie line, I guess, that uh, if you're if you're a good person, you know, back in the day, Jesus, a good Christian or Jesus would have been a socialist. Nowadays, if you're a good Christian and you're going to support reparations for black people. There was a lawsuit back in the 90s that claimed that the USDA had discriminated against black farmers and denying them loans. And there was a settlement. And the U.S. and the government paid out billions and billions of dollars to farmers. And so the argument behind this is that not all black farmers were able to claim the, you know, the settlement money. So this is just compensating them for discrimination because for years and years they were denied loans from the USDA. 
Okay, so other people who don't necessarily take that kind of diplomatic approach, they're basically just saying, yes, this is reparations and we support it. They're arguing that 100 years ago, 14% of farmers in the U.S. were black, and today only 2% or 3% of farmers are black. They're arguing that there were so many millions of acres who were farmed by black people 100 years ago. Today, that has shrunk considerably. What they're not taking into consideration is that there were many more acres of farmland that was farmed by white people 100 years ago. In fact, farmers in general were more numerous 100 years ago before today. I mean, today it's like 1% of the population is made up of farmers because of big agriculture. But even without big agriculture consolidating farms. Free trade. Right, right. But well, yeah, without even without free trade and big ag, you would, you still had the massive industrialization of the country that took place. You had farmers leaving farms and going to work in factories because they could make more money working in factories. Also, a huge a huge proportion of the black population that farmed a hundred years ago worked as sharecroppers. So arguing that arguing that there were this many millions of black farmers a hundred years ago versus this many people today, it's because of discrimination. It's almost kind of like trying to compare, you know. Prices of anything back then to prices of today without taking inflation into account. Right. They, like it's the same thing. They don't take, they're not taking any of that. That's exactly, that's a perfect analogy. That's like saying a hundred years ago, you could buy a loaf of bread for two pennies. The fact that these grocery stores are charging more than two pennies today shows that they're exploiting the consumer. That's the exact same kind of logic that these people use to get this. Because most people, they don't, they don't know what went on a hundred years ago. They haven't, they don't know anything about American history. They hear that and they're like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess the government took land away from black people. We, I guess it's only fair that we give, uh, we set aside five billion dollars for for black folks. So in addition to the reparations to black farmers, we also have the aid to restaurants. This is this is a real, this is a real good one right here. Oh, this is the one where Biden literally at a press conference declared like, you know, and we're gonna give aid to businesses that need it the most. The business is owned by women and people of color. So basically, a business is owned by everyone who's not a white man, Joe, is basically what you're saying. Like, you got to love these word games that they play, man. They play these word games to basically be cute about it and sound like they're being inclusive when you might as well have just said everybody except white men. And it's the same thing. So this bill grants restaurant owners up to $5 million per facility to offset losses caused by lockdowns, which is great because restaurants have been hit hard. So $5 yeah. million per restaurant, that's kind of that, – That's, that's a lot of, of money. Right. That's that's good because what, what a lot of these cities were doing is they were the amount of money that they were offering restaurants to stay closed was so small that it, so many restaurants had to close their doors. Yeah. It's something like 60% of small uh, family-owned restaurants have had to close during this pandemic. Literally two of my favorite restaurants near where I live right now have been shut down permanently by this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. And this it's not like we're, we're in some small town. I mean, this is Arlington, Virginia, which essentially is Washington, D.C. So in this bill of the $5 million per facility to offset uh, the cost of lockdowns, only women, veterans, and owners of, quote, socially and economically disadvantaged groups are allowed to apply for this aid for the first three weeks. So if you're white and you're a business and you're a restaurant owner, you have to wait. You have to step to the back of the line and you have to wait till all of these disadvantaged, socially and economically disadvantaged groups, which includes everyone who isn't a white male, gets their five million from the government. And then you get the crumbs after they're done getting their aid. I think I know what it is now. I think they used words like that phrase socially disadvantaged just because that's fewer words than just listing every other race besides white people. <laughs> They're just right. saying to businesses owned by African-Americans, Latinx Americans, uh, Native Americans, Asian Americans, every other, every other group in existence that's not 
white men. Again, fewest words possible. You could have literally just said, yeah, every business that's not owned by a white man. But of course, they would not be able to get away with that because they're not quite there yet. But they're getting closer. Well, it would be, yeah, it'd be just so much easier. Be honest. Say this is for anyone who's not a white male. You know, if you're a white male, you're going to be treated as a second class citizen because you've been the at the top of the food chain for all these years. So because of your gender and because of your race, you deserve to be treated as less. So taking the argument that this is reparations aside, if you put this aside and you just look at the argument that those are making who say this is tied into the, the Pigford lawsuit. Farmers often borrow money to carry themselves from high-cost planting season to harvest time. That's because of this lack of credit. They need loans. A lot of times they'll get loans from USDA. The original lawsuit, Pickford versus Glickman, was filed in the federal court in Washington in August 1997. And the argument went that the Agriculture Department's Credit Bureau, which is called the Farm Service Agency, often denied or limited loans to black farmers while freely distributing these loans to whites. So, they, you know, if, if you had the U.S. government agency that was actively discriminating against black farmers and giving loans to whites, then obviously this, is, this would be a legitimate case to bring against the government for discrimination. I remember this was, uh, this was about 12, 15, 14 years ago. There was, a, there was a rally in Montgomery uh, by black farmers, and I was seeing, watching some of the interviews, and they were, the, the farmers were arguing that white farmers get subsidies, that white farmers get loans from the government, but black farmers don't get any of that. And, I mean, on face value, that doesn't make any sense. How could, The federal government obviously can't legally discriminate against black farmers like that. But, you know, if they're told that they're being discriminated against, then obviously that's what they're going to believe. So let's. So I looked into this, and if you will, I'll link this article in the description – so two government reports in 1997 found absolutely no evidence for ongoing systemic discrimination. The Government Accountability Office reported that 16% of minority farmers were denied loans compared with 10% of white farmers. So this there was only a 6% difference in the uh, number of rejections of white farmers and the number of rejections of black farmers. But the Government Accountability Office traced the difference to objective factors like bad credit. An agriculture department study also found, quote, no consistent picture of disparity over the previous two years. So, you know, in the in these cases, black farmers gave heartrending accounts of loan officers who withheld promised money while crops withered, who repossessed their land and sold it to white cronies who advised them to milk cows for white farmers rather than sow their own crops. You know, pretty, pretty serious charges. John W. Boyd Jr., a Virginia farmer who leads the National Black Farmers Association, was among those who pressed President Bill Clinton to settle the case. At a White House meeting in December 1997, Mr. Boyd said he recounted how a loan officer denied him $7,500 and then handed a $150,000 check to a white farmer who had not even filled out an application. So this is this would be a clear case of discrimination. But keep in mind, this is 1997. Mr. Boyd was talking about something that happened back in the 70s. So why didn't he bring this case back then? Why is he bringing this 20 years later? And, and notice he was sitting down with... President Clinton at the time explaining, you know, explaining the story of discrimination that he faced, trying to get President Clinton to do something about it, I guess, to drop the case on the, to instruct the uh, instruct his government to drop the case. But this happened over and over again. This was really how the case was brought to was brought to settlement was through sob stories because there was no proof to back any of this up. The same, he said now, Mr. Mr. Boyd said that the same loan officer spat at him. And he said that the loan officer later claimed that he meant to spit as a spittoon. So, you know, OK, maybe he was sitting in the general vicinity of a spittoon. This loan officer spits 
he misses the spittoon and Mr. Boyd thinks that he's spitting at him. He says, oh, no, I'll start. You know, stuff like this, this stuff is something that you would bring right after it happened. If you're trying to get a loan from a government agent and he does something like this, you don't wait 20 years to bring this in a class action lawsuit. Mr. Clinton asked Carl Willis, then senior advisor to the Democratic National Committee, who was known for his expertise in black voter turnout, to get involved. Mr. Willis said the president wanted to make sure his home state, Arkansas, benefited. Mr. Willis said he recruited Othello Cross, a Pine Bluff lawyer, to join the plaintiff's legal team. So he initially limited the class of potential claimants to black Americans who had farmed between 1981 and 1996 and had previously filed written discrimination complaints. The final order significantly expanded the class, admitting those who had only attempted to farm, and it threw out the requirement for a written bias complaint, stating that an oral complaint was sufficient if someone other than a family member attested to it in an affidavit. So anyone could claim that they were discriminated against by the USDA, as long as someone who wasn't a family member signed off on their complaint. The Agriculture Department was, part, was partly to blame for the lack of records. It routinely discarded failed loan applications after three years, and it had badly mismanaged written discrimination complaints. Ninety percent of the farmers had no written records either, plaintiff's lawyer said. The billion-dollar settlement, the judge's opinion said, was designed to provide those class members with little or no documentary evidence with a virtually automatic cash payment of $50,000. So everyone got an immediate cash payment of $50,000, immediate $50,000 check from the government, um, based on an oral argument that someone who was not a family member signed off on. Those with documentary proof could seek higher awards, a tack ultimately chosen by fewer than 1% of applicants. John C. Coffey, Jr., a Columbia law professor and specialist in complex litigation, said that not requiring documentary evidence was, quote, quite unusual, but there were also, but these were also special circumstances. Still, he said, quote, I don't think they realized how much of an incentive they were creating for claims to multiply. It is a little bit like putting out milk for a kitten. The next night, you get 15 kittens, and this is exactly what happened. Delton Wright, a Pine Bluff Justice of the Peace, recalled what happened after word of the settlement reached his impoverished region. He said, quote, it just went wild. Some people took the money who didn't even have a garden in the ground. He added, they didn't make it hard at all, and that's why people jumped on it. Mr. Wright, whose family owns farmland outside Pine Bluff, won his claim. So did two other applicants whose claims were virtually identical to his with the same rounded handwriting, the same accusations of bias, and similar descriptions of damages suffered. Claimants described how at packed meetings, lawyers' aides would fill out forms for them on the spot sometimes supplying answers, quote, to keep the line moving, as one put it. Even his own staff was complicit. Mr. Cross said he discovered that four employees had been slipping unverified claims into stacks of papers that he signed. He did not inform the court monitor, he said, because the damage was already done. In recent interviews that the New York Times did, this is this article is from 2013, 15 current and former Agriculture Department employees who reviewed or responded to claims said the loose conditions for payment had opened the floodgates to fraud. Quote, it was the craziest thing I'd ever seen, one former high-ranking department official said. Said, quote, we had application for kids who were four or five years old. Hmm, sounds kind of like how voting is done in America nowadays. Said, we had cases where every single member of the family applied. The official added, quote, you couldn't have designed it worse if you had tried. Carl K. Bond, a former agriculture department farm loan manager in North Carolina, reviewed thousands of claims over six years. Said, quote, I probably could have gotten paid. You knew it was wrong, but what could you do? Who was going to listen to you? Accusations of unfair treatment could be checked against department files if claimants had previously received loans, but four-fifths of successful claimants had never done so. For them, there was no way to refute what they said, said Sandy Grammer, a former program analyst from Indiana who reviewed claims for three years. Quote, basically, it was a ripoff of the American taxpayers. 
And in 16 zip codes in Alabama, Arkansas, Mississippi, and North Carolina, the number of successful claimants exceeded the total number of farms operated by people of any race in 1997, the year the lawsuit was filed. Those applicants received nearly $100 million. In Maple Hill, a struggling community in North Carolina, the number of people paid was nearly four times the total number of farms. More than one in nine African-American adults there received checks. In Little Rock, Arkansas, a confidential list of payments shows 10 members of one extended family collected a total of $500,000, and dozens of other successful claimants shared addresses, phone numbers, or close family connections. Again, very similar to how, uh, how we see voting done in many of these states. 30% of all payments totaling $290 million went to predominantly urban counties, a phenomenon that supporters of the settlement say reflects black farmers' migration during the 15 years covered by the lawsuit. Only 11% or $107 million went to what the Agriculture Department classifies as completely rural counties. So you've got people in cities. If you happen to move to a city within these previous 11 years, I mean, probably you didn't even have to show. Well, again, you didn't have to show proof that you had moved to a city. If you happen to have been black, you could just say that you had tried to farm and you couldn't get a loan from USDA. You can get uh, get a buddy to sign off on it and you get a check from the government for $50,000. And then if they question it, they could say, oh, well, you moved to the city 10 years ago. So this happened before you moved to the city. In Arkansas, prosecutors rejected a test case. This was a fraud test case against a a Pine Bluff police officer who had admitted lying on his claim form. Paula J. Casey, the United States attorney in Arkansas in 2000, said that singling out this one individual raised questions of selective prosecution. Quote, the defendant could go to the jury and say, everybody else did this. Why am I standing here? And she wasn't she wasn't wrong. This is exactly what would have happened. So even though he admitted under oath that he had lied, you know, what are you going to do about it? Everybody else lied, too. So it's no big deal. The claim period ended in late 1999, although the adjudication process dragged on for a dozen years. But the gusher of claims had only begun. Quote, once those checks started hitting the mailboxes, people couldn't believe it, said Mr. Wright, the Pine Bluff Justice of the Peace. Quote, then it dawned on them. If Joe Blow got a check, I can get one, too. So. As lawmakers began to be lobbied by people who had missed the deadline, Mr. Boyd said Mr. Barack Obama's support led him to throw the backing of his 109,000-member Black Farmers Association behind the Obama presidential campaign. Hillary Shelton, the NAACP's chief lobbyist, said Mr. Obama's stance helped establish him as the defender of the concerns of rural African-American communities. Public criticism came primarily from conservative news outlets like Breitbart and from congressional conservatives like Representative Steve King, who was a rep- Republican representative from Iowa. A.K.A. Uh, literally one of the greatest members of Congress in history, and we will never forget you, Steve King. I definitely agree. So uh, Representative King described the program as rife with fraud. Few Republicans or Democrats supported him. Asked why, Mr. King said, quote, never underestimate the fear of being called a racist. And he wasn't wrong about that. Congress finally inserted a provision in the 2008 Farm Bill that allowed late filers to bring new lawsuits with their claims to be decided by the same standard of evidence as before. In other words, no evidence. The bill also declared a sense of Congress um, that minority farmers' biased claims and lawsuits should be quickly and justly resolved. Within months of taking office, President Obama promised to seek an additional $1.15 billion dollars. In November 2010, Congress approved the funds to protect against fraud, 
Legislators ordered the Government Accountability Office and the Agriculture Department's Inspector General to audit the payment process. But simultaneously, the Agriculture Department abandoned the costly and burdensome review process it had applied to earlier claims. As a result, according to internal government uh, memos, the percentage of successful claims is expected to exceed that in the original 1999 settlement. Of course, this is written in 2013. So throughout these years, there's $1.15 billion that was signed into law by Obama. These black farmers have continually been you know, receiving these $50,000 claims from the government by just saying that they were discriminated against without having to provide any evidence for it. So this article written in 2013, the New York Times is saying this is going to continue to happen because this is still, this is an ongoing situation. So I guess by the time you get to 2021, uh, most of those claimants have already claimed everything they're going to squeeze out of the government. So that's why President Joe Biden figures, yeah, we need a new, we need a new round of stimulus to black farmers. So now that other groups were seeing that black farmers were getting free money from the government, they're like, hey, we went in on this as well. So uh, the Native Americans decided to bring their case claiming they were discriminated against the, by the government as well. Within the Obama administration, Secretary Vilsack, who was a former Iowa governor and is now the agriculture secretary under President Biden, he made the claim that sweeping settlements with the three groups, uh, women, Native Americans and Hispanics, who now wanted their, went in on it as well, he said that would eliminate legal risk and smooth relations between the agriculture department and important constituencies. The key word being constituencies. Remember, this is all this is all political payback. These are basically political kickbacks to groups of people who are back in the Democratic Party. The Native American case was clearly problematic for the government. The federal judge overseeing the case, Emmett G. Sullivan, had already certified the plaintiffs as a class, although only to seek cha- uh, changes in government practices and policies. He postponed a decision on whether they could seek monetary damages as a class. That Sullivan, by the way, that Emmett Sullivan is the same guy who obsessively tried to wage a deranged one-man war against Michael Flynn. Correct, Basically yes. went out of his way to basically try to give Flynn the, the death penalty for treason for no reason other than just he really hated Trump. Like, he is actually— He's going to be the worst judge in all of America. He's an actual tyrant in every sense of the word. Well, it's it's polit- he sees his job as political. Very clearly sees his job as political because he had uh, he had already overseen the case. So it says Sullivan had already certified the plaintiffs as a class, uh, but just so they can seek changes in government practices and policies. So he's clearly playing the role of the Demo- just playing in his democratic role to divide people among class, not seeing American citizens as individuals, but as groups of oppressed peoples and oppressed classes. But Justice Department litigators were far from unarmed. If they lost on damages, case law suggested that the decision might be reversed. Depositions had already revealed many of the individual farmers' complaints to be shaky, and federal judges had already scornfully rejected the methodology of the plaintiff's expert, a former agriculture department official named Patrick O'Brien, in the women's case. So yeah, you got to keep in mind, so you got the Native Americans, Hispanics, and women farm, you know, I guess women of any race who are now saying, you know, look, if black farmers could get paid out, we're going to bring these cases as well. Mr. O'Brien contended that white farmers were two to three times as likely as Native Americans to receive federal farm loans in the 1980s and 1990s than were other farmers. But the government, government's expert, Gordon Rouser, a professor of economics and statistics at the University of California, Berkeley, had produced a 340-page report stating that Mr. O'Brien's conclusions were based, quote, in a counterfactual world and that Native Americans had generally fared as well as white male farmers. Professor Rouser was astounded when, with both sides gearing up for trial in, the, in late 2009, the government began settlement negotiations. Say so He said, quote, if they had gone to trial, the government would have prevailed. So why, why did they start settlement negotiations when they clearly, the Native Americans clearly had no case? 
He said, Rouser said it was a joke. I was so disgusted. It was simply buying the support of the Native Americans. And that's exactly why this was done. That's exactly why the uh, Pickford cases were settled by the government. They were simply buying political support. You had uh, the Clinton administration that was buying the support of black voters. Now you had the Obama administration that was buying the support of Native Americans. Agriculture officials predicted that only 5,300 Native Americans were likely to file claims. The plaintiff's lawyers whose fees were to be based on a percentage of the settlement, estimated up to 19,000 claims. Huh, kind of gets the brain going there when you think about that. Yeah, only, but... It's not like these lawyers have a motivation No, no, they've got no motivation at all. They just, they want, they feel so bad for the poor, uh, oh. the poor oppressed Native American farmers. They just want to help them out the goodness and kindness of their great big hot. I don't know, man. That kind of gets the noggin jogging, doesn't it? But and so the agriculture officials predicted only 5,300 Native Americans were likely to file claims. Only 4,400 actually filed claims, with 3,600 winning compensation at a cost of roughly 300 million. This left 460 million dollars unspent, of which roughly 400 million, under the terms of the settlement, had to be given to nonprofit groups that aid Native American farmers. It's funny how these nonprofit groups always seem to win any time that there's a major government settlement with uh, with oppressed peoples. Ross Once Racine, again, the noggin is a jogging. Exactly. Ross Racine, the director of the Intertribal Agricultural Council based in Montana, said his organization with an annual budget of just $1 million is perhaps the biggest eligible group, but many others are lining up to share the windfall, he said. Quote, everyone is looking at this money on the table and saying, give me some because I'm a good guy, he said. The remaining $60.8 million will go to the plaintiff's lawyers led by Washington firm Cohen, Milstein, Sellers, and Toll. In court papers, the firm argued that the size of the payment was justified partly by the fact that the settlement nearly equaled the maximum estimate of economic damages. Joseph Sellers, the lead counsel, acknowledged the unspent amount was unexpectedly big, but, quote, absent a court order, he said, we don't intend to return it. (laughs) All right. On February 19, 2010, Alan Weissman, a lawyer for the Hispanic farmer, strode into Federal District Court of Washington, unusually upbeat. Quote, sometimes, he told Judge James Robertson, it takes divine intervention to move the government. Judge Robertson had refused to certify either group as a class. The United States Court of Appeals had upheld stating in 2006 that the Hispanic plaintiffs had been denied loans for a variety of reasons, including inadequate farm plans and lack of funds. Nor had female farmers. Now, the two groups that I mentioned, Judge Robertson refused to certify either group as a class. It's um, This is talking about the Hispanics and the women. So the Native Americans were already, their case was settled. So now the Hispanics and women were trying to bring their case against uh, against the USDA. The Justice Department's lawyers had definitively ruled out any group-style settlement. Some of the folks had never made a loan payment in their entire history with USDA, Lisa Olson, the lead government litigator against the 81 Hispanic plaintiffs, said. There may even be folks who are under criminal investigation. But members of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus and a group of eight Democratic senators led by Mr. Hernandez, Menendez, that's, um, that's Senator Menendez from New Jersey, they were lobbying Obama to move the, in the opposite direction. They grew increasingly agitated as the plaintiff's cases appeared to falter. In a letter to Mr. Obama in June 2009, the senators noted that black farmers stood to receive $2.25 billion in compensation, but that Hispanic farmers who alleged the same kind of discrimination had gotten nothing. You know, so this is how it works. The black farmers, they get paid free money by the government. So the Native Americans are like, hey, we're oppressed too. We want some free money. So they threatened to go to court. And they don't have a case. And the government's like, OK, never mind. We'll, we'll settle this with you out of court. So they make a settlement. And the Hispanics and women, they're saying, hey, the blacks and the Native Americans, they got paid. We want to get paid, too. And so, of course, the Hispanics, they've got a they've got a very powerful senator in Mr. Menendez of New Jersey. So he he 
basically is very bad at Obama for not backing this because it's like, hey, you're you're supporting the supporting the black farmers. What about us? What about our people? So he wrote in September, quote, Hispanic farmers and ranchers and their supporters will be reaching out to community and industry leaders outside the Beltway in order to bring wider attention to this problem. And of course, President Obama, he doesn't, this is a headache to him. He doesn't want to have to deal with this. He doesn't want, the last, he's already got black nationalists breathing down his throat because they're claiming that he's not doing enough for them and he, he ought to do more because he's half black. He ought, he ought to be, you know, giving them more money. And now he's got uh, this Hispanic senator who's a Democrat uh, claiming that he needs to do more for them because it's not fair. So obviously they sit down, they decide to come up with a settlement. Uh, settlement negotiations began the next week. Judge Robertson expressed surprise at the news given the history of the case. So he was shocked that this was even being settled. But again, this is politics. Even though they don't have a case, this is about buying votes. In agreeing to the payout, the government did for the first time impose greater evidentiary burden, this is for the payout to Hispanic farmers, while one major category of claimants, those who said the loan applications had been unfairly denied, remained eligible for payments of up to $50,000 without any documentation. Others were required to produce written evidence that they had complained of bias at the time. The Hispanic plaintiffs were indignant. Because remember when uh, this Virginia farmer said that he was uh, spat at by the uh, the USDA employee back in the 70s, he didn't provide any evidence of that. It was just his word. And he didn't even say who that person was. He just It was just some unnamed government employee. So they're saying, OK, well, we'll give a payout to the Hispanic farmers, but you're going to have to provide evidence that you complained at the time. And the Hispanic farmers are like, well, wait a minute, the, the black farmers, they didn't have to do this. Why are you singling us out? Why are you making us provide proof? Adam Feinberg, who represents some of them, said, quote, once the government puts a program in place for one racial group, even if it decides it is too generous, it cannot adopt a different set of restrictions for another racial group. It's outrageous. And he's right. This is what happens when you are a government and a nation of racial groups rather than citizens, which is what we have clearly become. The claims process opened up in late September. Six weeks before the election. This is September 2010. So this is right before the midterm elections. In the weeks before the March 25th deadline, facing far fewer claimants. This is this is gold right here. So in the weeks before the March 25th deadline, facing far fewer claimants than expected, the Agriculture Department instructed processors to call about 16,000 people to remind them that time was running out, despite internal disquiet that the government was almost recruiting claims against itself. Oh, my goodness. The deadline was extended to May 1st. So basically, they're like, not enough people are signing up. We need to get people to sign up. Oh, my. Remember, the Agriculture (laughs) Department is the defendant in this case. And they're instructing their bureaucrats to give these Hispanic farmers a call and say, hey, time's running out. You need to apply. So you need to you need to get your free money. And since enough, even after calling these folks up to tell them to complain because they didn't complain fast enough, they had to extend the deadline and so they could recruit enough defendants to make it look like, you know, enough people, enough claimants to make it look like it was actually legit, legitimate. Hey, don't you know you're supposed to be oppressed? Get over here and ask for your free <laughs> well, money, damn it. Right, right. So, you know, Hispanics, like any immigrant group, like Italians or whatever, they're just here, they're just jiving. They're just yeah, making they're, money. They they're don't chilling, understand. you know? They're but working. They, they, yeah. they don't realize they're oppressed, but they get a call from some bureaucrat in Washington. Hey, it, we see that your last name is Hernandez. We just didn't want to let you know that because Hispanics have been discriminated against by the USDA, that you can claim $50,000. If you'll, all you need to do is apply by this deadline. They're probably thinking, huh, that that, that doesn't seem right. I haven't been oppressed. I haven't been discriminated against. I got my loan just fine. What are you talking about? And so they don't apply. They got to keep making phone calls to get enough people to apply. So so far, when this article was written, it says about 1,900 Hispanics and 24,000 women have sought compensation, many in states where middlemen have built a cottage industry promising to help win payouts for a fee. So somebody calls you up. They say, hey, you can get $50,000 from the government because of the settlement, but I'm going to expect 
two thousand up front, and then after you get the settlement, I want a couple of thousand extra. I mean, I, you know, I'm the one that's letting you know that you're oppressed. So I, you got to give me a fee for letting you know that you're oppressed. Last October, a court wrote that hundreds, perhaps thousands of people had given money to individuals and organizations in the belief that they were reserving the right to file a claim under the second settlement for black farmers. So keep in mind, remember, the time has run out for black farmers to make these claims. So these middlemen are also scamming black farmers. Well, I mean, they're not scamming Hispanic and women farmers because they actually can make claims. But the, whenever they're reaching out to black farmers, they're actually scamming them. So these black farmers only learned later that their names had never been forwarded to, to the authorities. People familiar with that statement said it was uh, it was directed in part at Thomas Burrell, a charismatic orator and the head of the Black Farmers and Agriculturalists Association based in Memphis. Mr. Burrell had traveled the South for years, exhorting black audiences and auditoriums and church halls to file discrimination complaints with his organization's help in exchange for a $100 annual membership fee. On a recent Thursday at the Greater Second Baptist Church in Little Rock, several hundred African-Americans listened intently as Mr. Burrell told them that they could reap $50,000 each merely by claiming bias. He left out the fact that black men are no longer eligible and that black women are eligible only if they suffer gender, not racial bias. He said, quote, the Department of Agriculture admitted that it discriminated against every black person who walked into their offices, end quote. Quote, they said we discriminated against them, but we didn't keep a record. Hello, you don't have to prove it. In fact, he boasted he and his four siblings had all collected awards and his sister had acquired another $50,000 on behalf of their dead father. Again, this is very similar to the way our elections are run. She cinched the claim, he said, to a ripple of laughter by asserting that her father had whispered on his deathbed, quote, I was discriminated against by the USDA. Quote, the judge has since has said since you all look alike, whichever one says he came into the office, that's the one to pay. Hint, hint. He said there is no limit on the amount of money and there is no limit to the amount of folks who can file. He closed with a rousing exhortation. Quote, let's get the judge to go to work writing them checks. They have just opened the bank vault. So this is the thing that a lot of people don't understand when people talk about equality. They talk about racial equality in America. They don't want equality. Okay, we've gotten past the point where people are like, okay, we agree. Everyone should be treated equal. We've moved way past that point. Now they've kind of thrown people. They realize that most Americans are kind of on to the game. So they've thrown out the word equality. And now they're using equity. Equity is uh, just a way of, you know, that's what, what they mean by that is reparations. We've moved, moved past equality. So now let's force everyone on the same economic playing field. And of course, you know, they're not going to stop there. They're not going to be happy until we have really a reverse discrimination system in which white people are second class citizens. I mean, they're already giving out free money to people based on the color of their skin. They're already denying people help from the government through this COVID bill based on the color of their skin. And when it, when you get right down to it, just like uh, Mr. Burrell said, he said, let's go, let's uh, get the judge to go to work writing them checks. They have just opened the bank vault. They don't want equality. They want the bank. And that's the key to the resurgent, revanchist black nationalism that we see in America. And so the Democratic Party, in order to maintain power, they've been making these payments out to farmers of these different racial groups to buy their support. And this is something that Republicans just don't like fiscal conservatives. They don't understand the way Fox News covered. This was really interesting. They said the headline says farmers react to billions in COVID-19 relief bill for black farmers. Quote, where did common sense go? And they're quoting a farmer. Kelly Griggs, she says, uh, where did common sense go? Talking about just because you're a certain color, you don't have to pay money back. 
talking about how all the black farmers are having their loans completely forgiven. And she, you know, she wonders where did common sense go? But they're, they don't understand this. Is, this makes perfect sense. It's very simple. Raphael Warnock runs for the Senate in Georgia. Black voters want reparations. They believe Raphael Warnock will give them reparations if he's elected to the Senate. He gets elected, and in exchange, he gives them reparations. So they will show up to the polls and vote for him again. It's very simple. You vote for somebody, they give you money. In exchange for the money, you help them maintain power. This is the way democracy works when you have groups of people in a nation rather than individual citizens. The government, the Democratic Party, needed to pay off black voters back in the 90s to keep them voting Democrats. So that's what they did through the, through the Pickford settlements. And then they needed the Native Americans were like, hey, what about us? They're like, OK, well, we'll settle with you. Hispanic and you know, feminist farmers are like, hey, what about us? We're discriminated, too. We're not white men. So they're like, OK, well, we'll create a settlement for you. But then once that runs out, you got to keep paying them. You know, these settlements, they don't last forever. You're just going to have to keep paying them. This money right now, the $5 billion, this isn't going to last very long. They're going to need to pass another $5 billion in farmer reparations in by 2024, 2025, and then another $5 billion in 2030. You have to keep this going because it's about, at the end of the day, it's about buying votes. And as long as Republicans fail to understand that if you want to win elections, you have to reward your constituents with money, they're continually going to lose elections. I just have nothing to even say that when I'm trying to think of something clever to say to to outro this episode. But that that's just depressing, man. That is just it really lets you know that we are very, very far from things getting any better. They're not even not even two months in and they're already doing this stuff. And it's only going to get even worse between now and 2022, how blatant it's going to be, how discriminatory it's going to be. And no one's going to care. The media is not going to cover it. Their voters will reward for them for it. And we are in for a very, very bumpy four years. If there will even be a country by 2022, that is. All right. Well, that's all we have for today. This has been episode number 12 of The Right Take. Tune in next week. We'll talk to you next time, guys.